welcome to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and we have today regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who is one of three representatives for the town of Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Good morning, Olga. Good morning. And we also have Stephanie Yu, who is from the Public Assets Institute. And she has been on the show before, and we are so glad she can return. Welcome, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. So we are going to talk about the ever-exciting issue of revenues. And it is something that we always usually talk about, usually earlier in the year. Uh, but with, of course, the pandemic, everything has gone whee, up into the air and down again, like a whole new brand of pickup sticks. So I just want to give a little um, data for folks to keep in the back of their mind. This is from the Agency of Administration. It's their June 2020 monthly report, which is actually the final month of fiscal year 2020. And for general fund tax revenue... The state brought in one, uh, $121.20 million, which was just about $20.61 million below, million below estimates, which Emily will give us some context on that in a second. Uh, for the year, um, fiscal year 2020, I don't know why I'm trying to do numbers at 7-something in the morning. Um, for the year 2020, we were about 8.49% below estimates with revenues. And, you know, that's a little bit, estimates are one thing, rev, actuals are another. Um, but Emily, just give us some context about how the the legislature and the state kind of look at estimates versus actuals. Well, so, I mean, you build a budget based on estimates and because Normal, so normally we would, and I think we've talked about this before on the show, but um, in a non-pandemic economic shutdown year, we start building the budget in January, um, but sort of, you know, finish it up in April for a start on July 1st. And that built into that is the fact that um, taxes come in on April 15th. And so we have a very sort of clear sense of actuals um, or past actuals on April 15th. We sort of have this, um, we have a check on our estimates on April 15th. So this year, in addition to the fact that the pandemic made everything, made um, any projecting extra difficult because we didn't know would things get worse, would things get better? What exactly is a rainy day? Who knows how rainy can the day get? Um, how long will things be shut down? That's when we were sort of in March. That's what we also had a postponed tax filing deadline to July 15th. And so there was a lot of confusion about what would happen. There's still a lot of confusion what would happen. But we moved, um, instead of doing a full year's budget at that point in April and May, 
we decided to just do a first quarter budget, right. which we've talked about before. You could also call a fifth quarter budget. I think that's actually a better way of explaining it than mm -hmm. a first quarter budget because it was in fact really just an extension of the previous year's budget in most ways. So anyway, we did a fifth quarter, first quarter, whatever you want to call it from July to October. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. I always lose track of my, the end of my quarter. Um, and so now we are back um, trying to do the last three quarters of the year. Mm -hmm. And as we're getting revenue estimates, um, they keep on coming back. Um, it was sort of very, especially the Ed Fund, was very, very, very dire in, say, March. And every time we get a new estimate every month or so, um, the hole closes a little bit. And so I think there are some people who think if we just keep on sitting here and waiting, maybe it will get good enough that we don't have to do anything. So, huh. and Stephanie was making some fabulous faces while I was talking, so I can't wait to hear what she has to say about what I just said. I know, that was my question for Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> yep, no, I, I, I think that's a good description of sort of the weirdness of the process this year. And I, I think there is this pressure, you know, the, the, the sort of, continuing resolution or, or partial budget that was passed, it does end on October 1st. So there's this pressure to get something in place before then uh, and figure this out. But I think that's right. I think the the revenue estimates, it's not just that there's, um, that they're, you know, that they've been revised downward from where they were originally in January. It's also that the timing is all screwed up and that there's much more uncertainty this year than any other year ever in sort of the history of all this. And I, and I think the you know, it's good to just take a step back and remember why that's true, because this is really a public health crisis and not an economic crisis. So, you know, that public health issues are going to sort of drive some of this, at least, you know, you know, the assumption is, is that there'll be some, some pent up demand when things are ready to come back. But, you know, it's also hard to say when that will happen when people feel comfortable on the public health front. You know, there's a whole lot of, um, you know, we just don't know if this is going to get worse before it gets better. Vermont has been doing pretty well in terms of the public health piece, but obviously there's a whole, you know, a whole lot of uncertainty left with that. Um, and so, so we can't talk about this or think about this, like either a normal budget process or a normal sort of economic cycle, you know, where there's a recession and then we sort of expect this gradual recovery. It was sort of this very abrupt on one day, everything shut down, and you know it's hard to know when things will be back. Um, so I think it's just kind of you know worth worth noting that the public health considerations are what are going to drive the economic recovery, which also sort of drives the the revenue process. Um, One of my fears, and I don't know if this is um, might be too earlier to add this thread, is that if we treat this like a regular recession um, and sort of pull back and hold on to our funds in the, um, the fear of the worst rainy day or whatever it is, that we're actually going to be, in addition to the public health crisis, economic fallout, we're going to be then creating a recession, essentially. So there's been a couple of saving graces, I think, you know, obviously the, the federal funding and the federal support has been a huge, you know, a huge help. Some of, I think, part part of the partial budget plan was not just because there was so much uncertainty, but it was also because we didn't know what we could do with the federal relief funds. And we mm -hmm. were sort of hoping for more flexibility from the feds, which hasn't happened. Happen. Um, but was, was part of the question, but Vermont did get 
you know, the small state minimum for Vermont was was a good amount for a federal relief fund. So, you know, relatively speaking, sort of on a per capita basis, Vermont got a decent amount in federal relief funds. So that's really been a saving grace. The feds have also picked up a lot of this, you know, the additional unemployment, the supplemental unemployment, which ran out, um, although there's sort of this mixed, this confusion about what's happening going forward with that. But, you know, so there was a lot of money that was provided, which has helped sort of save both allow both sort of save the state budget but also allowed uh, the states put a lot of money into things that we we wouldn't have dreamed of paying for a year ago you know the child care for essential workers and you know some, sort of some of the pieces that nobody imagined that the state would be doing right now so i think that you know the federal relief has made a big difference but <clears throat> but to your point about sort of the timing of you know one of the things that we talk about a lot is that the demand for governor government services is mostly countercyclical. People need government services more in downturns. And so actually what we should be doing is spending more in downturns. And, and that sort of should be the approach that we should be, be making sure that people are getting what they need. I, I have a little bit of optimism in the sense that I do think that, the, that through this process, people have been asking more of the right questions than in a normal budget year. Like how are we making sure that everybody has what they need? Are people getting fed? Are people getting taken care of? Are people able to stay in their homes? We've been asking those questions, which we weren't necessarily before. And I think that's, you know, that is a silver lining in that those are the right questions. The, the question then becomes, can we sustain that going mm -hmm. forward? Mm -hmm. So, Emily, I realize some of the conversations that the legislature is having, those conversations are still ongoing. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just realized that when I asked this question, but, you know, what type of questions are the, the, are your colleagues asking and what are, are the answers that are coming back useful? Um, do, do you know what I, I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, useful. Let's see. That's a funny question. Useful for, um, okay, let me clarify that. Useful for the people who have need, who have needs that need to be met. Oh, okay. Because the process in committee of often asking witnesses for information and how that's negotiated with the administration does not always result in useful answers mm -hmm. because it's um, more like, I don't know, playing poker or dancing or some kind of terrible metaphor. Um, so when we ask the question, are people getting their needs met? Are people staying housed? Where ans the answer is about today. Mm -hmm. We're very rarely asking the question, is what we're doing today going to ensure that people will be housed and fed and have dignity tomorrow or next year? And if we ask the question, and it's hard for the, the way we do planning, and we've talked about this with members of the administration before, the way we do planning doesn't necessarily, at, um, for state services, doesn't necessarily even allow folks to answer that question. But if we then take a further step out, is the particular way that we're budgeting and creating revenue, making space in the future for people to be able to get their needs met is like a third level question that in some ways we actually asked yesterday, we had a panel, panel discussion on ways and means that we invited appropriations to, and we had someone from Brookings and someone from Moody's and Tom Cavett, our state economist come in and talk about, um, sort of strategies for a recession um, 
recognizing that this is not actually a recession. And so it was sort of like, what did we learn in the past that might be helpful now? What isn't helpful now? Um, there's a lot of conversation about like, how is this like Irene versus how is this like a recession? I think that's marginally helpful because it has some like deep resonance for Vermonters, but I don't think it's actually helpful from an economic mm -hmm. perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and so the question about how can we ensure that there's funding available to meet people's needs six months from now, I think is the question that's being asked and answered in a variety of places. And I'm not sure um, if we're getting to the, if we're getting to a point of usefulness for Vermonters, for, for Vermont families with that. And so one of them is, um, sorry, I'm getting really circular here. The, so if we think about who is um, struggling right now and who isn't and the capacity for revenue creation, um, some folks are talking about sort of a K-shaped recovery, which is like basically impossible to visualize on a graph and not really um, a particularly resonant phrase for a human to listen to. Um, but it basically means what we already know and we've talked about a lot on the show, that some of us um, white collar workers are um, probably earning the same are earning the same amount they were before, and are spending less because. So, I'm a good example. I still have my three jobs. Um, I can work from home for all of them, <laughs> and um, I'm hardly ever leaving the house. So I'm spending a little bit less money than I did before. We didn't really like spend very much money before, but we're spending a little bit less money than we did before. And there are a lot of other families who say aren't paying for childcare because there's you know, childcare childcare is not really quite as available. And so they might be like suffering a trapped in their home and struggling mightily to do the right color jobs, but they're spending less money while getting their income of the right color jobs. Or people um, in an upper income bracket who are an even better example, have the right color jobs. The stock market is doing remarkably well some days. You know, we look at how the billionaires have like tripled whatever, you know, like exponential growth in their earnings in this time. And then people aren't going on vacation. It's kind of a weird time to buy a yacht. Who knows? So we have people who are doing much better or who are stable right now and spending less. And then we have people who are um, really, really struggling. We had the people who were on unemployment and had more income than they had before because of unemployment. That's a very small group of people. And so the question is like, where, where is their money available right now in our system? And is it in the places that it should be? Mm -hmm. Stephanie, did I butcher that terribly? No, I think that's it. That's a, a great sort of summary and, and context for what we're talking about here. I mean, I think I think a couple of things that sort of we think about um, about this whole process. I mean, you, you may have you may have um, dampened my optimism a little bit by by telling me about that conversation, but but that's okay. I can deal with that. But the but but I will say I do think that there is something backward about our our normal process in the state budget. And that is that we, there, there's two sides to it, right? With most of the state budget, we take the revenue we get and then we fit the state budget under that, <clears throat> you know? So, so even in any given year, even if we had the best, most progressive revenue system in the world and people are doing well in the stop, stock market at the upper income level, you would still have fluctuations. You're still gonna have fluctuations in that revenue system. So I think what you need is sort of a more robust smoothing process, right? So again, I mean, we talk a lot about rainy day funds. Vermont has them, but doesn't really have a great system for using them. There are a lot of states, there's a lot of recommendations where you would have a much bigger sort of 
<clears throat> cushion that you know would then allow you to smooth things from good years to bad years um, and allow you to kind of meet that counter cyclical demand. But I think the main issue is just that we, and we do it differently with school budgets, right? With school budgets, with the education fund, we change the rate every year to bring in the money that we need to pay for the schools, which is sort of the opposite process of what we do with, every, with everything else in the state budget. We look at the money that comes in and then see what we can afford to do. And we're not starting with the need. And I think we need to start all of these conversations with how do we meet the needs? And, and I think a lot of our, I mean, I think one of the things that has become apparent throughout this pandemic is that you know, so many of our safety net systems, first of all, it's really hard to design any kind of, you know, you know, sort of um, security system that that is going to meet a crisis like this, where all of a sudden 80,000 people are unemployed, right? Like, that's a, that's a really, we're, we're not saying that the unemployment system should be designed to meet, to constantly be able to help 80,000 people. But the, but it does highlight the fact that all of these systems are based on the assumption one, that only a small number of people are going to need them at any given time, but also that the goal is to keep that number small by having some cutoff so that you meet the money, right? So that, you know, what you, when what you really want to be able to do is serve all the people who need help. And, and I think that's really not how our systems are designed. And I think we're seeing that pretty clearly in this process. So I think there's some both sort of some process issues and some policy decisions that, you know, that really need to change to make this work better for people. And I think to, to Emily's point, yeah, this, you know, lays bare the inequality here, right? You know, we know there's plenty of people that are doing just fine and not just doing, and doing more than fine. The stock market is pretty much back. Again, that's, that's not the economy for most people, but it is for a small, a select group of people and they're doing great. And that's where the money is. We talk a lot about, um, you know, a revenue system that's more progressive because we do have wealth accumulating, income accumulating at the upper income, you know, they're pulling away from sort of everybody else. And that's, that's really the system needs to be designed to, to follow where the money goes. Can I, the rainy day fund, what you said yeah. about that. So um, Vermont has a rainy day fund, is very proud of its rainy day fund. Seems like the rainy day fund and, you know, and the reserves that Vermont has um, are actually better than most states. Maybe not as good as say like Texas who has, all, or Alaska who has all that oil money, but um, still like pretty extraordinary, like much better than other states. It's cushioned us this year substantially. Mm -hmm. But when I have conversations with colleagues People say, well, this, we shouldn't use it now because this isn't a rainy day. And so what, what is a rainy? And so I ask people like, okay, like I'm not going to argue with you about it. Can you tell me what a rainy day looks like for you? Like when, when is it rainy? So, and so, yeah. yeah. So I'm like, I'm very, and then I'm fascinated about it. Um, and so people said like, when there's a downpour and right now feels like a deep drizzle and soon there will be a downpour. And so the idea, what you described is that the rainy day fund sort of sits there as a buffer for even like a misty dark day, mm -hmm. but still available for the, so I'm, I'd love to hear more about that. So we put it at about, we put it at 5%. So each fund is about, it's 5%. That's the idea. And what, what a lot of um, economists recommend is, is really is 15%. So just 15%. from the perspective of, of like the general of fund the fund. budget? 
Right. Okay. So whatever the fund is, you have 15% of it in reserve. So the education fund would have 15 versus 5%, which is what we have now. I think part of the reason we're so proud of the stabilization of the rainy day funds is that um, we, you know, we mostly fully fund that 5%, which is a cushion. A lot of states, you know, especially I worked for the state government for, in Michigan for a number of years and, you know, we had blown through reserves. I mean, that that state had been in economic crisis for a very long time, and you know, had had blown through reserves very early on. And so, you know, I think you can you see different pictures of what this looks like, but we have done a pretty good job of maintaining those reserves. Um, but the issue of whether it's raining or not always, you know, I I actually felt like people were acknowledging that this was raining, that it was raining, right? That that because. It is so unprecedented. You compare the number of people unemployed to the worst of the Great Recession, where you know we're triple where we were, and things are just things are things are bad. So I I do think that there has been a little bit more movement on these than normally, but I but that has been the practice in Vermont. I think the practice has been uh, we don't touch them. We try our hardest not to touch them which is not really what we mean when we talk about sort of reserves and stabilization. The point is, is that it use, you use it as a smoothing. Now, maybe you keep a 5% reserve that you don't touch it, that you don't touch, but then you need another five to 10% that you can use throughout the year. You know, I think there's some combination here, but yeah, I think the, the question of whether it's raining, I, an, an unprecedented pandemic that just pulls the rug out from 80,000 Vermonters seems to me like, it's pouring as far as I can tell. Thank you, Stephanie. We're going to hold there and take a quick break to hear from our underwriters here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro. WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you are just joining us, I am your host, Olga Peters, and I am speaking with Representative Emily Kornheiser, who is a regular contributor to the show, as well as Stephanie Yu from the Public Assets Institute. And we are talking about public health and revenue and Vermont's future. Once this uh, public house health crisis has um, abated. So I just, for a framework, one thing I just want to set up, because this is something I've been kind of struggling with as, as we talk about economic issues and COVID, is it seems to me like we have two budgeting challenges right now as a state. We've got to deal with whatever is happening right now. And so many people are still in crisis. They have yet to enter like the recovery phase. Um, so we have the right now that we cannot ignore. But we also need to plan for the future because at some point this pandemic will end. However, we had need before the pandemic. We will have need after the pandemic. So for me, I'm, I'm always curious, like how do you balance those two, those two needs right now? Um, so that's where I'm kind of coming from for this second half. Um, Stephanie, what, what are your thoughts on that kind of two-tiered need or two-tiered planning? I think that's right. And I think, I think that's a good sort of setup for it and, and way to think about it. But I, I also think that some of the solutions in the building blocks are the same. 
right? I mean, I, I go back to feeling like we are in this crisis asking some of the questions that we should be asking all of the time, which is, you know, how do we best take care of everyone? So that includes kids, families, essential workers, people of color, you know, how are we, how are we taking care of everybody and how are we directing our, our collective resources toward where they're needed the most, you know? And, and I, I do think those questions are, are the right questions. I think the, again, I think the federal money um, is often sort of seen as this, you know, this temporary sort of pot and it, you know, a big pot, big enough pot that we can do things that we maybe hadn't thought about doing before, but that when it's gone, then it's gone and there's nothing we can, we can do after that. Like we just, we give up that was, that was, you know, that was as long as it lasted great that it lasted as long as it did. But I, but I don't, you know, I think that's the, the, the wrong question. First of all, I think it's, you know, I think states do have this sort of posture where thinking that where we treat the federal pot so different from ours, even though for a taxpayer, they're essentially the same pot, you know, the taxpayer is not distinguishing those revenue sources. And, you know, the question is, how do we, because we also have a role to play in terms of how the, how the federal government spends its money and how they think about how to help people. So, you know, it's still, it's still, the federal money is still our money. So how do we, you know, how do we direct all of that and think about how these things are complementary? But I also understand that because at the state level, you're dealing with sort of the state revenue equation piece of it. And, um, but, but I look at it and, you know, the, so the, the federal, in, in a normal year, the federal, federal money is about a third of the state budget. Obviously, it's been a big chunk of what this, you know, of what has helped with this crisis. Um, I think people have heard the, the 1.25 billion in coronavirus relief funds that, you know, that is really for the state government to use. Um, state and local to use to help with this crisis, but there's also all the, the federal money that has gone directly into people's pockets, whether it's the unemployment, whether it's the, you know, the direct stimulus checks, whether it's the, the loans to small businesses, some smaller than others. Um, but so there's a lot of money going into, you know, directly into people's pockets as well. So when, you know, that, that and, and part of the problem here is sort of the next phase of this crisis is that a lot of that initial relief is over. And what's going to happen now for people, you know, that without the unemployment, without even these small businesses who are relying on those PPP loans for eight weeks, that that eight weeks is coming gone. And now what um, if you can't go back to work? So, you know, I think there's there's sort of a lot of questions that are up in the air. But um, but I think to, to sort of more more to the question, I do think that laying this groundwork is important to talk about, you know, state has gotten more involved in the I mean, there's been a sort of a childcare, I'm sure Emily has heard some of it. There's been a childcare conversation in the state house for a long time, which is that everyone knows that childcare is too expensive for families, that workers aren't paid enough, that the whole funding system is just essentially broken and nobody has known how to, you know, has, has figured out whether it's the political will, whether it's the policy, it's sort of all of the above, nobody's solved the problem, right? But now we're talking about it in a way and we're, we're actually talking about sort of how do we do this collectively in a way, again, I, I, I don't know where that will end up, but I do think that I'm glad that that's where the conversation is at the moment. But, but I will say from the, from the sort of, um, so, so thinking about sort of some of these building blocks that we could use, you know, we are kind of putting some of these systems in place that we could use going forward. But, but looking at this, so getting back to the state budget, you know, so in a normal year, the federal, the federal revenue is about a third of the state budget. So we're still talking, two thirds of the money is coming from the state. Is, is the state is raising the money to pay for these things. So we could do a lot more at the state level. 
you know, there is, we talk a lot about the total personal income in the state, which is $34 billion. And again, for a whole lot of people, they're not going to see an income hit in 2020. And so, and we collect about three and a half billion of that. So about 10% of that is what we collect in state and local taxes. If we collected 11 or 12%, it would go a long way toward making the investments we would need to make. And, you know, we think about income, in, you know, not all income is the same. Income to meet your basic needs is not the same as, the, as discretionary income and what you have above that. So I, you know, we do need to think about a progressive tax system that sort of follows, it really needs to follow the discretionary income, right? That's what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Emily, the, you had curiosities about debt and investment. Yeah, um, and I wanna just name that if you're, if I'm allowed to have favorite things about the pandemic, which I'm probably not, but it's all that keeps me going to have favorite things about the pandemic. It's the fact that we are, more people are talking about these issues that some people were talking about before. And so, you know, it's laid bare for folks so much of what's going on. And, you know, the childcare crisis is something that parents certainly knew about and most business owners felt was, you know, a mm -hmm. crucial crisis too. And now people who are sort of outside of those two spheres now see the pressure, um, you know, hunger, housing, all of those things are really laid bare so that more people can see them than saw them before. And an acknowledgement that we need to invest in those things if we want to have all Vermont families thriving or having a chance or investing in their communities or whatever phrase you want to use. Um, and so I do think we have an opportunity now that more people are thinking about it to start investing in those systems so that those systems and our Vermont families will be sort of thriving on the flip side of this um, crisis. So what I am wondering about, it seems to me when we think about sort of the um, small cuts that might happen right now. We're doing a lot of sort of trimming around the edges because we're scared for the fiscal future. And we think about, you know, the phrase is fiscal drag, you know, so we do some trimming around the edges, we do some cuts. That means that those folks don't necessarily have income that they're then, you know, using to take care of their families. And so they're spending less and all of that. So it seems to me that if we can sort of build out these systems now, rather than waiting until the crisis, if we can build, if we can meet people's needs today, instead of waiting until the crisis worsens, that will be, you know, creating more of a virtuous cycle. Um, and we'll have an easier, the crisis will be easier for everyone, even though there will be a crisis, and less people will suffer. And so, you know, I think it's really, really dangerous to use personal income metaphors for um, municipal, state, or federal budgets, but I'm about to do it anyway. Okay. Um, so, you know, at my house, hypothetically, I know that if I sort of like invested now in a solar panel by taking on some debt, then hypothetically, my electricity bill would go down and I would save money in the long run. I don't actually have a solar panel because I don't have the discretionary income to buy one. But if I could structure that loan properly, that would work. And so what would it look like in Vermont to be borrowing in a way that would really help us grow our revenues and support Vermont families 
in the medium and long term. Is that something you've thought about at all? We've talked about it some, and I know it's been a couple of months now since I think uh, Treasurer Pierce gave sort of her perspective on whether the state would need to borrow. You know, there's a couple of different things that the feds have done to make it easier for states to kind of states and municipalities to borrow temporarily. And, and you know, right or wrong, I think the general consensus in the, in the state is that we don't need to. And I think part of that is we've solved sort of the we've solved the state budget equation for the immediate year. And I think to your point, sort of the focus being on the right now and the mm -hmm. focus is every year with the budget, there's always, we, you always hear about the budget gap and the budget gap is really kind of a squishy number to begin with, but the whole budget exercise is how we, how we solve that budget gap. We close the gap between revenues and, 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 and sort of what our committed, you know, committed services that we have. So where would, what's a, what's a normal, what would a normal budget look like? You know, there's growth in some areas, there may be caseload adjustments in others, whatever. And then where the revenue and then how do you fill that gap? And usually it's a mix of cuts. Sometimes there's been like trying to get away from kind of the use of one-time funds, but it's a mix of cuts. It's been a while since there's been revenue. Every once in a while, there's like little bits of revenue that are in that mix, but there's also a lot of sort of creative moving around of things that allows you to say that the budget gap is closed, even though it's sort of a, like I say, a squishy number to begin with. Um, and so I think that, you know, the governor's budget that to finish out this year has, you know, again, I think to your beginning point, revenues have come in higher than expected, partly because of the timing of the shuffling, but also partly, you know, it wasn't just the income tax that we get on April 15th. It's also the monthly sales tax payments yep. had also been delayed. There's, you know, there's a bunch of pieces that we weren't really sure that we kind of postponed and then mm -hmm. um, actually came, did come in a little better than sort of that worst case scenario. But one, of, but the other biggest thing I think that helped with the 2020 budget and helped close the 2020 budget with a good, um, with some carry forward for 2021 is uh, the FMAP, you know, the, 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 yes. the federal share of the Medicaid, they upped the share that they're, you know, covering for Medicaid, which made a big difference in the budget. So I, was, I don't know, it was a $50 million in the, in that range mm -hmm. for 2020. So, and if that, you know, and the question is how much that will continue and, and what other pieces might continue from the feds. But um, so from, from the perspective of sort of, you know, like a normal budget process, the, there's no gap this year, we're great, right? Yeah. But from the perspective of what are we doing to actually solve some of these things that we've been chronically underfunding, what are we doing to actually invest in things like childcare that we maybe haven't invested in before, or at least not nearly enough? Um, how do we figure that out? And I think, so, so I think to, to, to the borrowing question, I think that, you know, I don't know how much of a conversation, you would know better than I would how much of a real conversation there is about I mean, that. if the treasurer doesn't want to do something, it's not going to happen. Right. And so I'm just like, I'm just but looking at all the tools and trying to find my way through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the question is worth asking in the sense that ultimately, I don't know that there's a huge difference between whether you borrow to make those investments or whether you create a more progressive revenue system and bring in the revenue. I think there's a lot of room to bring in more progressive revenue mm -hmm. before you have to get, even have a conversation about borrowing. That's where I would start because that's because there's no reason not to, from my perspective. Again, the discretionary income is there. There's a whole lot of upper income people whose incomes keep growing mm -hmm. and we're not following that money. And not only that, who have benefited from the last 20 years of tax cuts, yes. right? Like federal tax cuts have really, so, so 
So, you know, they may not be exactly the same people who benefited from the Bush tax cuts 20 years ago. They might be their children, though. They might be their children, or they might, you know, there's still this, there's a slice that has been benefiting that has been seeing their, their taxes reduced for a long time for generations. And so, you know, I, I don't, I don't have any problem saying that we need a more progressive revenue system and that we need to raise more money from upper income people before we need to talk about borrowing. Um, but I also oh. think that we should make the investments by whatever means we have. So, so what would it look like to get those progressive revenue structures? I mean, mm-hmm. so there's there's a, a number of pieces in this. I think I think we maybe we brought up in the in the break the tax structure commission and the work mm-hmm. that they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been doing a lot of work on on a number of issues and sort of laying out, you know, I think their report is due in February, maybe February of 2021. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but they've been having a lot of really wide ranging discussions on 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 these topics. And so have looked at a lot of different pieces. And, you know, Vermont has Vermont state and local tax system is one of the least regressive in the countries. It's in the country. It's still not progressive right it's it's just it doesn't make it worse it doesn't make things more regressive right so it's sort of a there's sort of this well we are ahead of all these other states but the bar is pretty low right like in terms of where we are so um uh, you know there's a couple of sort of relatively straightforward things that we have advocated for for a number of years in terms of closing income tax loopholes um you know looking at phasing out some of the benefits of the lower brackets as you get to the upper income brackets um, again, once you get to a certain level, the majority of your income is discretionary. So mm-hmm. let's let's think about how to tackle that. Um, and I think there's um, there's you know we sort of went the the opposite direction of what we would suggest in terms of the estate tax in terms mm-hmm. of raising the threshold of where that kicks in. There's a lot of debate. I think a lot of what drives the conversation is sort of the myth that we're going to drive high income people away when in fact most recent JFO studies showed the opposite. And there's really, and not just for Vermont, but there's really no evidence in any no. tax change ever at the state level that that high income people move around as a result of it. So I think that, but that, I think that myth and that and that need to sort of stay in the in the pack and not be outside the pack has been has really driven policy, even though it's not necessarily even though there's sort of no evidence that backs up that that's the right thing to do. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that making these investments brings people to your state. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And if we think about sort of the, um, those investments that would bring people into our state, they are exactly the sort of pieces of social infrastructure that we've been talking about for so long and what's the only thing that's keeping us from it is the conversation about not having enough revenue and those all become significant quality of life changes for Mm -hmm. all vermont families but that and when that happens it becomes a, a sort of a livable place a more livable place you know which is exactly what drives high income people to an area is sort of the livable the livable community um, story which is what's driving you know new yorkers here right now every day down here in windham county where every house on the market is being bought up in with cash so mm-hmm. yeah and i may have gotten away from the the, the 
beginning of your question, which is what could we do with the tax system now? Um, sorry, I, I do get excited talking about this stuff. So <laughs> even at 7.30 in the morning, um, but, but you know, one of the other things that the Tax Structure Commission, and we, we actually presented to the Tax Structure Commission on Monday about going to an income-based education system, education tax system. Mm -hmm. And I think, I, but I think what I would come back to is sort of a couple of principles more that we would ap approach the tax system with. There's a, there's, there's a lot of options, but I think that there, um, that any changes we make, we would want to be moving in a more progressive direction. So with an income-based school tax, you know, you would, you know, even going to just a a proportional tax where everybody's sort of paying the same would be an improvement from the regressive system that we have now. Um, I think we, you know, I think there's also sort of this kind of myth in the in the building that in the state house that where people really feel like, oh, well, we need to keep each of these pots balanced, the property, the income, the sales tax, we need to have this good mix and this sort of diversification piece. But I think like what we've seen in this pandemic is that you know, these things are connected in a lot of ways. And so people pay taxes out of their income, whether they're paying their property tax or sales tax or, or their income taxes coming out of their income. And also that, you know, your income might not have changed in this pandemic, but you're still not spending. You're, the sales tax consumption is really down. Uh, the gas tax, you know, there's, there's weird things that are happening um, in this pandemic that just, you know, so, so I think there's sort of been this sort of conventional wisdom for a long time about keeping things balanced, but but ultimately coming back to a progressive system, whatever that looks like, the sales tax tends to be extremely regressive, right? Low-income people still have to buy what they need to buy. And so you end up with this very regressive system. So anything that takes our system in a more progressive direction is, is the way to go, I think. So I just wanna ask both of you quickly, if you have this number, We've said a couple times, you know, after a certain threshold, um, your income is discretionary. Do do we have a number for what that looks like in <laughs> Vermont? <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on what someone's life looks like, right? I mean, it's the discretionary income for a family of eight is very different from the discretionary, you know, for a family of two or a single man. I mean, mm -hmm. that's... But we do do this exercise. I yeah. mean, the JFO does do this exercise of setting a basic needs budget, and it and it looks at it looks at a bunch of different things. It looks at family size. It looks mm -hmm. at rural versus, um, you know, city. I guess if we can call it that in Vermont. Um, but you know, so it looks at and then it looks at if you have employer based health care or not. So you know, it does. There is this exercise now. You know, there's there's pros and cons to a lot of getting to those numbers, but you can get to a reasonable number. Mm -hmm. You know, you know. So, so if we say a family of four's basic needs budget is in the eighty to eight ninety thousand dollar range, and we know that there are a whole bunch of families of four trying to live on forty or fifty thousand dollars a year, that's a huge difference. And so, um, you know, again, I think you know, I think Emily's point too. I mean, if childcare is for if childcare for one child is going to cost a family ten thousand dollars a year, one, we should do something about that. But two then their basic needs budget is going to look a little different than somebody whose kids are school age or, you know, teenagers. So, and so, and like when we, if we could use that pot of money to create the social infrastructure, such as, you know, um, 
affordable, accessible health care, affordable, accessible child care, affordable, accessible family, you know, universal family medical leave, then the variations from family to family about what discretionary income and what a basic needs budget looks like would really narrow. And so we'd have a much, each Vermonter's financial experience would be much more similar to each other. Mm -hmm. that, that, I think that that's a, that's the way we think about it. I mean, that's a really good point in terms of there are many levers government can press to adjust both on the cost side for families and on the, you know, and on the revenue side for families. So we need a progressive revenue, but what we're trying to do is, yeah, then have reason, you know, get to this cost issue of these big costs. I think housing is another one in there. Oh, housing, yeah. Childcare and healthcare are sort of those big three costs for families that really are out of reach for a whole lot of people. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason I, I bring up whether we have that number or not. And, and yes, of course, it will, it will change based on someone's lifestyle. But I think we have to be very careful when we talk about economics. So often what we are all, we, we talk about them as if they're just these straight numbers in, straight numbers out. But there are actually a lot of stories. And I think a lot of people, we have been raised, at least in this country, and I think Vermont, specifically, is if you can't make ends meet, it's because you're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's really helpful for people to know that if a basics needs budget for a family of four is $90,000 and you're trying to live on 40, you know, the system isn't working. And it's if not you're you having grown in 20 years, the system isn't working. Yeah, yeah. That, I, I think that's right. And I think there's also, yeah, this question of sort of what are the co collective investments um, and then where is there, you know, again, room for people to be making decisions on their own. Um, but what's the basic level that people need and how do, how do we make sure that they have those and they have that? I think that's, a, that's sort of the question we should be starting with with, this, with the state budget. Yeah. We are out of time because we need to get Emily to her next meeting. So unfortunately, it's a means committee, which everyone can watch on YouTube anytime they want. It's such an exciting opportunity. Top 10 great things about the pandemic. You can watch the legislature happening from the comfort of your home. This it's is been so true. for me. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those people, one of those 12 people in the audience on a regular basis. <laughs> Well, Stephanie Yu from the Public Assets Institute, thank you for joining us today. If people want to find more information on what the Public Assets Institute is doing and looking at, where can they go? They can always go to our website at publicassets.org or social media, Facebook, we're everywhere. Fantastic. And Emily, where can people find you if they have questions? EmilyKornheiser.org. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Emily Kornheiser. And um, every Saturday at 10 a.m., I'm doing a Zoom community conversation and you can find the login information for that on Facebook, Instagram, my website, front porch forum, call me, whatever it is, would love to talk to people. And this is the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on BCTV as well as the internet and our Vermontitude SoundCloud page, our Vermontitude Facebook page. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye.